You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey there, thanks for finding us after a few months away. I'm Aaron Fishman, and it feels great to be back. Lauren will be with me later, too. Anyway, LeBron James' impressive eight-year streak of consecutive finals appearances was snapped last year in his first season as a Laker a rare injury-plagued campaign for the future Hall of Famer. That season also marked the first time a LeBron-led team failed to make the playoffs since 05. As you'd expect, however, LeBron bounced back. In Anthony Davis and head coach Frank Vogel's first year in town, LeBron bounced back in a huge way, guiding the team to a conference-leading 49-14 record and the league's fourth-most efficient offense. It appeared his Lakers were on track for a conference finals berth at the very least. Then, the season was shelved on Wednesday, March 11th, in light of the worsening COVID-19 pandemic. Two months later, its resumption is still a big, hazy question mark. To help us reflect on this season's Lakers and speculate on what they may accomplish if the NBA somehow manages to return, we're delighted to be joined by Harrison Fagan, writer and editor-in-chief of Silver Screen and Roll, SB Nation's Los Angeles Lakers site. Plus, before we go, the Southern California native shares some of his most poignant memories of the late Kobe Bryant. As we attempt to fall back into normalcy, nothing's remotely close to normal, but we're getting back into the swing of things here, and especially energized to do that with you, Harrison. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. I'm, uh, you know, like, I think like almost all of us, like, I'm just kind of sitting at home, uh, like trying not to go stir crazy. So like if this, you know, this gives me something to do for an hour, that's not like either playing video games or blogging. So like, I'm, uh, I'm happy to just like talk to other human beings. You know, it's one of these weird things right now where like any, like, I'm not like a big phone call guy normally. Um, but like now, anytime you get a call, like, even if it's from like, like I got a call from my mom this morning, that's like, w- like weirdly exciting just because it's like someone that is not in your house that you're going to get to talk to about something that you haven't already talked to already. <laughs> I, I can totally relate. And we're glad to provide that service for you, but also <laughs> we really appreciate you lending your time to us. So I wanted to start on this because your intensely personal story on mental health really touched and inspired me. I can't remember uh, recommend it enough to our listeners who haven't read it, and we're going to include the link in the show notes. But just most basically, I wanted to ask you how you're coping right now during the pandemic. You know, it's it's one. Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, like the kind words on the story. Like that that was like no literally the reason that I published it was because because that that was not like an easy thing to write and like put myself out there on necessarily because like this stuff is so stigmatized like having mental health issues is like still even like as it's gotten 
admittedly a lot less stigmatized than it was when I was a kid. It's still stigmatized and like you're still seen as like other, I think, in a lot of circles when you admit stuff like that or like people don't want to talk about it or things like that. So like Mm -hmm. the reason I published it was because like I wanted other people that were sitting at home like me feeling like, okay, like this thing that I use to escape from reality, I use it as a coping mechanism, I use it as like, you know, something to distract myself, something to enjoy and relate to other people over is like gone now. And what do we do? Because you can't, sports is not like, like if you're in a community and like, like that's centered around Star Wars or centered around like, you know, some musician or something like that, like you're going to find other things like you're going to start like having watch parties or doing whatever like this doesn't disrupt that that much like with basketball that's literally shut down and so I think this community that we've all built up like uh, around Lakers and uh, on like NBA Twitter and NBA communities websites as a whole you know it's just kind of it's not gone but it's receded and there's no games around it and so I just wanted to write it and just let people know that it's okay to struggle it's okay to feel like you're going to be alone but you're not and we can use these communities to kind of connect with each other even if we can't go into work and see people in our day-to-day lives and things like that and like just shared how that community has helped me with that even before we were in the middle of a pandemic I think that's really great and you had this line that I want to read I want to be honest about my mental health so that I can be held accountable for taking care of it. So in your mind, when you're making the decision whether to write the story or not, was it kind of those two rationales where you wanted to help other people destigmatize mental illness or depression or OCD, but also that you thought it would help you? Yeah, so like, I thought that it would help me just in the sense of like, you know, this way... If I start going into a hole, like there's more people that kind of know why that might be and might be like ready to like either reach out or like it's holding yourself accountable. It's the same reason that there are people that tweet their workout numbers and stuff like that. It's like it's to publicly hold yourself accountable for a goal that you set out. And for me, that goal was to remain like a member of society, not retreat into my phobias and things like that. And the, the other, I think, like bigger part of it was just like, it's exactly what you said about the stigma of things. And um, like the only way to change this stuff and have people be more comfortable talking about it is to have more people talk about it more openly and have it not be that big of a deal. And so like, I want it to not be a big deal when I talk about, you know, being afraid to go outside or being afraid to like go back to work or something like that. Like these are things that we all feel on some level or another, whether it's like at a clinical, like anxiety level, or it's just like general, like kind of, you know, everyone's a little nervous right now, but we're all feeling that. And like everyone who's struggling should be able to talk about that. Cause one of the most insidious things, at least with my own mental illness was it made me feel like I was like weird and like there was something wrong with me and like you shouldn't talk about it because other people aren't going to be able to relate and things like that. And what what I found through like talking to other people about their own mental health struggles and things like that and what I found from like the um, like overwhelming feedback to the piece was that there are a lot of other people going through these same things and that appreciated that I was willing to talk about it. And I know that for me personally, I've really appreciated over the last uh, like 
I, I'd say probably two years or so, like really going back to Metal World Peace in 2010, talking about seeing, thanking his therapist after the finals, but at, like mm-hmm. Kevin Love about a year or two ago coming out and talking about his own panic attack in the locker room. And, you know, like I really appreciated all of these guys that have come out and talked about it. Like, just like, look, this is like any other injury or illness or anything that you're dealing with it. Like you wouldn't feel shame if you had a sprained ankle or if you broke your arm or something like that. Like, and so we shouldn't feel any shame over something like, like some type of chemical imbalance in our brain or like anything like that. Like we all deal with this stuff to varying degrees and in different ways. And we have to be able to talk about it. Yeah, that's really well said. And and again, I really appreciate you being open and honest and adding to the conversation, but I'll change gears here. And now we'll narrow down our focus to the Lakers the quarantined king, I'm obviously referring to LeBron James, who's posted no shortage of shirtless workout videos on Instagram, but he's also been really outspoken on various issues relating to the league's potential return and, and a number of other things too, as is standard with him. He's often in the unenviable position of being expected to voice his opinion on pretty much everything. Drawing upon your reporting, and what you've seen on social media and just generally what you know about him, how has he navigated this period? Yeah, you know, it, like it has to be tough, I think. And like, oh, like what you said about him feeling like he needs to, like in the somewhat unenviable position of needing to comment on everything, like in my opinion, that's sort of a position he's put himself in now because I think that he's very much branded himself as like, someone who wants to talk about all of these other things and you know whether it be through social media or entertaining questions and scrums that a lot of players wouldn't necessarily you know get or be expected to handle or like you know kind of take on about either political issues or you know what have you um like LeBron has invited this stuff because I, you know he very much wants to be like as he's happy to tell you in hashtags more than an athlete um and so like I think I'm not expe- I'm not surprised when I see him speaking out about this stuff. As far as the quarantine and like uh, the return to play and stuff like that goes, I've seen the same thing that everyone else has. And like my takeaway from it has been, you know, the the most interesting one was him kind of lashing out at that CNBC report that there were agents and I think it said like agents and teams that were talking about not coming back or expecting the season to not resume or things like that. And on one hand, I'm not really surprised that that was the thing that he chose to respond to because, you know, he's, uh, he's 35 years old at this point and um, just kind of like has to know that this is probably like one of his last shots at a title. So he's probably sitting there and anytime he sees reports that like this season is not going to return, he's probably like, well, Hey, hold on. What the hell? Like, we're not going to, we're not going to cancel this thing. Like, you know, we like this might be, I mean, it's probably not the Lakers only year with Anthony Davis, but how many more years does LeBron have this kind of performance in him? And that has to kind of suck to know that he's done everything that he can. And um, like, obviously this is not the biggest downfall or problem with the pandemic but like you know if you were at your job like everyone who it's disrupted their job or disrupted a really good year at their job probably it's like on a personal level like that part of it sucks specifically for me and I think LeBron is no different in that sense like he was hoping to really add to his resume and win a title with third franchise this year and that chance you know it seems more and more like the NBA is really going to try and force their way back in some form or fashion but 
you know, if it doesn't come back, like that would on a personal level, I think really suck for LeBron. Yeah. You set me up well for this one. Most people would agree that he was putting forward the very best individual season in the league this year with the exception of the Greek freak. And he was doing it at 34 and now 35 years old, which seems more like 40 plus when you factor in all the years of basketball mileage from him joining the league as a teenager and making a deep postseason run every single year and playing in the Olympics and all that stuff contextualize us for us his brilliant season i mean it's everything that you just said like uh, i think you just put it really well like you know at his age to be doing what he's doing like you know i I wasn't exactly like i don't know where this washed king came from like we we joke in uh our silver screen to roll slack that like my uh like longtime co-worker anthony irwin started it because he literally did tweet like everybody's like nobody tweeted that lebron was washed and anthony literally did tweet last year after he got blocked by hazonia at the buzzer lebron looks washed man so (laughs) Like we as much, but as much as we joke that like Anthony started the Wash King thing and that that's his fault, like nobody was seriously thinking that LeBron was washed. Um, but like there were more doubts about him, I think, going into this season than there probably ever have been. I don't think that last year was statistically the worst year of his career, but it probably was the worst year of his career, just all context considered. Like the fact that he went and joined the new team, like he, he had the most injury riddled season of his career, the most serious injury of his career so far. And well, I don't think that people were writing him off. Like the fact that he came into the season and for the most part has locked in on defense. Like, you know, he's had, as you would expect those 35 year old moments where he kind of disengages on that end. Like pretty much everyone would at that age to get through an 82 game grind, but he's mostly been a really important part of the Lakers defense. He's been basically their sole competent ball handler on offense. And for him to be doing that at 35 with the workload that he needs to take on and not really load managing, like he's missed a couple games, but it's all been for like, for the most part, documented injuries that happened in the game before and games before, um, or that he's, or like the groin thing that they're still trying to kind of take care of. But um, mm-hmm. he hasn't missed very many games and he hasn't been like periodically sitting back to back. And if he's doing that at 35, like I think it's probably as good of a 35 year old season if anyone's ever had probably better. Like I'd have to go back and look and see like, maybe did Kareem do anything like this? Like I haven't looked at that in a while because basketball seems so far away. Um, but like, like, I mean, what he's done this year has been nothing short of, I think probably unprecedented. I think he was mounting an MVP case before the stoppage just by virtue of like, you know, beating the Bucks, whatever. I still think that it probably has, I don't know how both of you feel, but I feel like it probably has to be Giannis um, just because of like the statistical dominance that he's put out throughout the entirety of the year. But LeBron was starting to make a little bit of like an outside dark horse argument, I think, before things shut down, just when considering all the context. It's funny listening to you recount events that happened during the NBA season. It just feels like a lifetime ago now. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And one, another possibly forgotten storyline that happened just before the NBA shut down was the Lakers signing of Dion Waiters in early March. He's obviously battled injuries and other personal issues lately. And most recently, he had the incident involving bringing edibles on the Miami Heat team plane, which he opened up about and took accountability for in a great entry for the Players' Tribune a few weeks ago. 
Do you think the existing veteran infrastructure on the team allows the Lakers to take more risks on guys like Waiters? Yeah, you know, before this podcast, you sent me like a brief like rundown of like what we were going to be talking about. I legitimately had like, I hadn't forgotten Dion Waiters was on the team, but I had not thought about Dion Waiters in like a serious Lakers sense. And like, it's been at least weeks. And like, especially in like a sense of like how he's going to fit in on the court. Like, I probably haven't thought about that since the season shut down. Um, Because I remember uh, like one of the little subplots of, that was, I think it was either the day of or the day before the season shut down. It had leaked that the Lakers were going to have him play, a, like not like a rehab game, but like a get your feet wet type game in uh, South Bay in the G League. And so the season got shut down, but at the time, the G League season hadn't been stopped yet. And so we were like, wait a second, there's no way that Dion Waiters is still going to play in this game, right? And then they ended up shutting everything down anyway, so it was a moot point. But Yeah, I think as far as like the veteran infrastructure goes and fitting him in, like this team has had an incredibly strong locker room. Like I think that that's been one of their biggest strengths this season, like outside of basketball stuff is how cohesive and banded together this team has been. And like, I think how much agency the players have been in who's getting brought in, how they fit in, what everyone's role is going to be and things like that. And you can make like their downsides to taking that approach, like, you know, just gesture to Rajon Rondo's minutes. Um, But like the upside of taking that approach is that I don't think that Dion would have been brought in if the players didn't get a good sense that he was at least going to like buy into the role that he was being given of like kind of breaking glass in case of emergency type guy. On paper, Dion Waiters is almost exactly what the Lakers needed. Like he's not a point guard. So like they could have used that probably a little more, but that player just wasn't really on the market. But everything else that he does is kind of exactly what they've been missing. Like they didn't have a lot of dribble shot creation this year. They didn't have a guy who could like kind of go get his own shot. It's very subtle, but they're like a little bit weak on the wing, which is weird to say about a LeBron team, but like behind him, They're a little bit undersized on the wing, like because Kuzma has not perfectly kind of fit into his role as like a small forward and he hasn't been able to do as much like creation as I think the team would have hoped for. And the Rondo, you know, year two of the Rondo experiment has not really worked out any better. So like waiters at the very least could give them a guy who could kind of capably go and get his own shot while LeBron is out of the game, which like would have helped them. But again, like, you know, where do those minutes come from? Because they aren't going to bench Rondo for him. And like, if they were benching Alex Caruso for him with how big he's been for their defense, like, I think that would be a mistake. Um, So I'm not entirely sure where exactly he fits, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine, like, it just the Players Tribune essay that you mentioned, like, it's hard for me to imagine him being a locker room issue after that and after going through all of this like it did seem like he's at the very least like I think ready to come in and play the role this team needs I I just don't know if he'll get the chance or if he can do it to a similar point um, a lot of people had similar concerns about Dwight Howard at his signing in the summer to a one-year deal for under 2.6 million dollars but he seemed to buy into his role and uh, we haven't heard anything about him having any locker room chemistry issues. Can you talk a little bit about his contributions this season and how that's paid off for the Lakers and Howard himself? Dwight's been incredible. I'll put my hand up and fully admit that I was skeptical when the Lakers brought him back. Like I think almost everyone was. 
it was kind of like waiters where like you could look on paper at the fit and be like, yeah, I mean, they do need like another big man. Like they need a guy that can kind of take some more center minutes when JaVale McGee is out because he's not a high minutes guy. And, you know, Anthony Davis doesn't want to play center for half the game. And like, that's somewhat understandable for the regular season. So they need that kind of guy. They need a guy that can screen. They need a guy like, but at the same time, it was like, well, we've been saying that Dwight could be that guy for like his last, you know, eight seasons in the league basically. And like, he just has never wanted to do those things or showed a prolonged commitment to doing those things and so I was waiting for him to come in and say all the right things and then by November be demanding post-ups and you know start to have issues and things like that but you know credit to Dwight because he really does seem to have made like major personal growth uh like just as a person as a basketball player like in terms of just how he sees the world and how he sees his role on a basketball team I think he has a lot of regrets about the way that he's perceived and a lot of regrets about the way that things have went with like past teams and those exits have went and like how happy those teams have been to see him gone. And I think he did just like bottom line. I think he knew that this was his last shot. If this didn't work out, like you may not have seen a team sign Dwight Howard the next time around. Um, And so like he's been incredible. He's been a super valued presence in the locker room uh, for the Lakers. And like, he, I think has been a guy that a lot of the team has rallied around. It has been like someone who has really gone out of his way to back up his teammates. The moment that I remember early on was uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope was getting a lot of criticism from Lakers fans. And, you know, he had just become kind of uh, like a popular target on social media Early on in the year, like he was playing really well defensively, but he had about as awful of a start to the season on offense as, you know, you ever could have imagined for a kind of shooter of his caliber. His first three games, I'm not even sure he made a shot, stuff like that, like just kind of wild stats. And so I remember it was like right after a game and the Lakers had posted some photo of Dwight on, I promise this story comes back to Dwight. Uh, They posted a photo of him on Instagram and someone had commented like, yo, trade KCP or something like that. And Dwight it, from the post game locker room jumped in the comments and was like, Hey, we don't say things like that about our teammates. Like everybody here has a role and like everybody should join in. Oh, well, that wasn't exactly what he said, but it was something along those lines. And I asked him after the game, like, why did you feel like that was important for you to do right away? And he just talked about how they're going to need KCP and they're going to need every single player on this team at some point. And I say this all to illustrate that like he was not the type of guy early in his career that was going to go out of his way and do things like that. Or at least it just didn't seem like it to me. And to just go out and that publicly go to bat for his teammate in a way that no one else in the locker room really had, even though I'm sure that like all these guys check social media, like all of us do. And I'm sure they had seen it. Like for him to go out of his way and do that and talk about how everyone's part of a team, like even KCP credited that to his, part of his turnaround. He felt like someone was in his corner again. And like, we've all had a bad week at work and beaten up on ourselves. And we know how like important it can be or in our personal lives. And we know how important it can be. Like sometimes for some, like one of your friends to just tell you like, Hey man, like it's going to get better. I, I just thought that that was really cool of Dwight. When I think of Dwight Howard, like those are the kinds of things that I think about this year, as well as just like he was an incredible defender right off the bat for the Lakers, playing, I think, far better than anyone could have reasonably expected on that end. He was like a great screener. He was 
he tailed off a little bit by the time that the season had shut down, as you would expect with a guy that his age um, and like usage level. But like he, he's been, I can't say enough good things about how wrong I was about the type of player that Dwight would be this year. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but regarding Anthony Davis's future with the Lakers, I think during the season, most people expected Davis to opt out after the season and then sign a longer term deal with the Lakers. Obviously, there's an interesting cap situation coming up. Uh, yeah, it's expected to be much lower. So do you still see that as the most likely outcome for him? given the situation that we're in and also more broadly, as you said before, do you still think it's regardless of how it happens, it's probably a near, near certainty that he's a Laker for at least the near future. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately it's pretty much a near certainty that he is going to be a Laker for at least the near future, but probably a long time um, or at least like several more years after this. Like I think, you know, they can say that he hasn't committed and all that stuff. And like, that's what Rich Paul has to say. That's what Anthony Davis has to say just for leverage purposes in case something goes wrong or whatever. But like, you know, the Lakers, I just don't get the sense that they would have given up everything that they gave up if they were not getting strong indications from Anthony Davis and Rich Paul and LeBron that like Anthony AD was going to stay for a while. And the cap situation that you mentioned has been interesting. I've been meaning to write about this and I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yet. But like, I keep going back to the idea that like, you know, I'm, and again, I'm not a cap expert. So like, maybe this wouldn't make sense. But I think the argument for him to opt out was that he was going to make a lot more on the open market, like the cap was, you know, pretty high, he could get like, you know, a full max contract, whatever, like, now, I'm not sure with the cap situation, if that's going to be as high, because I think that that's based on a percentage of the cap. And so it might make more sense for him to opt in for one year, especially I think a lot of this depends on where we're at when either this season resumes and or gets canceled um, or like and when next season starts. And like, I think like how close we are to life coming back to normal, because like, say that's pretty far down the road. Like, let's say like next season doesn't start. Like a lot of people have been talking about till January or something like that. Like if that's the case, then, okay, that puts it out like another year where there'll be a free agent again. Like, And by that point, you'd have to start to think that things are starting to return to normal a little bit. People are probably starting to go back to NBA games and things like that. The cap's going back up a little bit. People are buying merchandise again. Like, It might make sense from that perspective for Anthony Davis to like opt into the final year of his deal and just push off that free agency one more year because this already like was not going to be a year when a ton of teams had cap space anyway and it might make more sense just for him to defer that but again like i'd have to look at the exact math to be 100 sure stay tuned we'll be right back with more show Hey, this is Eric Pincus, and I'm on the NBA Beat. Getting back to the basketball this season, if we are fortunate to return, do you see the Clippers as the Lakers' biggest threat in the West, or is there another team that stands out to you? No, I, I think it's the Clippers. Like, the Clippers are the team that they've 
struggled with the most this season. You know, they beat them in their most recent game, but the first two games they lost, obviously. And, uh, like, I, I think that that's the way that it looked like it was going to be in the offseason. And, like, as much as I'd like to have, like, some interesting take on this where I'm like, oh, no, actually, I think the Mavs match up, like, really, like, the Lakers match up really bad with them. And they could be really in trouble if the Mavs are, like, the eighth seed or something like that. Like, I, I would love to have some kind of, like, really woke, like, uh, like galaxy brain take for you. But I just don't. Like, it, it, it's the Clippers. And, and I think it's always been the Clippers. Like, I, I'm not saying that the Lakers couldn't lose to any other team it's just it seems very unlikely that any other team in the west would be able to stop them like the the rockets i think are like they're kind of interesting as a threat because the lakers don't have necessarily the best like um they aren't the best suited to exploit the rockets problems because as big as the lakers are they don't have a lot of like post up big men um where like that's a strength where they're just going to roast guys repeatedly on post-ups so like the rockets might be able to get away with their style and like if they get really hot like give the lakers a struggle but um i i still especially with as small as they've gone and like right after the trade deadline um but i, I still think that it's got to be the clippers I really respect your knowledge and expertise, and I wouldn't want you to give me some woke answer just to be interesting. I think it's the Pelicans. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I was, like, trying to Harrison think of, like, could I come up with value. some other team to sound really smart, but um, I, I got nothing. No, it's okay. We just, we want, if it's obvious, it's okay. Yeah. We just want the right answer, in your opinion, and it seems to be that. And th- that's a good transition to my question about the storyline. I mean, I could talk for hours about this. Grew up a Clippers fan. I, I've been paying close attention to them this season. And, of course, I know how good the Lakers are. The Clippers consultant and Lakers legend Jerry West said he wants to see them face off in the conference finals. And it's so difficult to disagree with that. There's all these reasons why. But I'm just going to list off the ones that are most notable for me. And feel free to add some um, if you'd like. Both these teams have never been this good at the same time or really good at the same time period, it seems like. There's so much star power headlined by James, Leonard, Davis, George. They obviously play in the same arena. The Morris twins are on opposite sides and possibly now living together I'm, I'm not sure if you have an update on that situation they were they were not that was uh oh, they, damn they confirmed, like pretty much yeah i know i was like i was excited for like the storylines that we would have gotten out of that too like or the weird like um you know like i don't know like instagram like if they were doing an instagram live together after a game or like it just weird stuff happening like that um like you know what would have come out of it but uh I, marcus confirmed that uh he was not going that they were not going to do that because he wanted to have enough space for his family which is like just i, I think a little disappointing and selfish but you know <laughs> everyone has to value um what they value <laughs> or maybe he didn't want marquise to look at his playbook or something yeah, exactly. Like he's like, no, you've you've tried this before. Like, yeah. Um. So for all those reasons and maybe others that that I I didn't mention. Oh, Tyron lose another one. We could go on and on. But um, how do you see them matching up in, in a, a potential playoff series? Whether it's the finals or earlier. I, I hope it's not earlier. And how disappointing would this be if this doesn't happen? It, it feels like we've been talking about this since the beginning of the season, basically. Yeah, it's just like, it, this has been, like, for someone who covers the Lakers, 
it's been like, it, it's the best season that I've ever covered. It has also been easily the most exhausting. Just, just like horrible stuff happening all the time. Like there's a situation in China that got like a little bit scary for a while, like start the year. Um, and then like having to cover up, like cover the whole aftermath of like LeBron's comments on that. And then like in a completely different way, you know, there was obviously the death of Kobe Bryant and like that kind of just completely putting basketball on hold for like, basically it felt like a month, like where basketball just like didn't really matter anymore. Um, and then like now during a pandemic, like it, it would just suck if at the end of all of that, like this matchup that I think all of us were excited to watch, like every single basketball fan, I think was excited to see Lakers Clippers in the playoffs, just because like those three regular season games have been incredible. Well, at least the second two, like the first one, the Clippers kind of blew them out there, like towards the end and put that one like, uh, like that, but n- neither of the teams were at full like strength or, you know, and it was mm-hmm. opening night. So there's all these weird stuff on opening night, but the, the second two games were incredible. And I was ready for seven games of that or six games of that or however many you want to say. And like, I mean, the other factor that you, um, I'm not sure if you mentioned is like, the Clippers are basically like, not only are they kind of a little brother team in the Staples Center building. So there's like, I think sometimes like a Lakers fan, like, like, Oh no, I don't acknowledge them kind of like vibe to it thing when like, really it's like, that's the Lakers chief rival right now, whether you want to admit it or not. Um, But there's this dismissiveness of it and this kind of animosity between the fan bases, but it's almost like in a passive, it's like the most passive aggressive rivalry I've ever seen between (laughs) fan bases. Um, And so like there's that whole aspect of it. And then there's also like the Clippers are filled with Lakers villains, like, like somewhat, you know, you have uh, like Paul George who Lakers fans have no love lost for after the way that he kind of teased the team repeatedly, like for an entire year and then made an entire documentary just to announce that he was staying in Oklahoma city and then forced his way to the Clippers in a trade to help them get Kawhi Leonard, who the Lakers were also recruiting at the time. And then like, you know, Lakers fans, I think probably feel similarly about Kawhi and the way that he kind of dragged his free agency out to the point where like, there wasn't that much left on the market. And like, Hey, I I don't personally begrudge Kawhi for doing that. Like everyone has to take their time to make their decision or whatever, but that's something that fans were not happy about in the aftermath and felt like that he had kind of misled the team. And so like, there's just like all kinds of animosity. And it seems like there's genuine, genuine dislike between the two teams as much as they've kind of tried to downplay it throughout the year like they they know that like both teams know that they were constructed to beat the other one and like it, it it just it really showed out there on the court like those felt like playoff games in terms of intensity in terms of level of play in terms of like seemingly the level of prep that each team did for it like that you don't normally see in the regular season like like those games really mattered. Like you saw it with the way that Patrick Beverly was celebrating after the, they beat the Lakers on Christmas day and that like kind of crazy comeback. And you saw it with the way the Lakers were kind of like woofing back at the Clippers bench during that, uh, like their, uh, one of their last games ultimately before the season shut down. And like, they really don't like each other. And I think they're like a really intriguing basketball matchup too, just in the sense of like, how are the Lakers going to deal with Kawhi? Like, I think that we got some of the answers on that in their most recent win, but it's still going to be an open question for a playoff series and like how well they can kind of defend him and how the Clippers are kind of uniquely suited to have a bunch of guys to throw at LeBron and how much can Anthony Davis exploit the Clippers in the post and all of that stuff. Like 
you know, there were a lot of basketball questions that seem like they were a different lifetime ago now, but thinking about it again, just as I'm talking, like, I, it would really suck if we just didn't get to watch that series or if it was like at a really low level just because these teams have been laid off for so long not playing basketball. So this is Frank Vogel's first season as the head coach of the Lakers, and it's been a very successful one for the Lakers. But how do you assess the job that Vogel has done so far specifically? I asked Frank, and it was actually, I think, my last interview before the stoppage. I asked him, like, what grade he would give himself, and he said that he just didn't want to do that. But, like, I think if I had to give him a grade, I'd say probably, like, a B. Somewhere around there, like, I think he's done, like, an incredible job, especially, like, he was not really set up for success, as weird as that sounds to say about a team where he's being given, like, Anthony Davis, LeBron James, and, like, you know, shooters. But he was not, in terms of, like, a perception way, really set up for success. Like, he was very clearly the team's, at best, their third choice, like, maybe fourth behind Jason Kidd, who they didn't want to hire because of, like, some of the perception reasons that I think that that would have led to. And especially with, like, some of the things that Jason Kidd has been convicted of. Like, I don't want to say the wrong crime on podcasts, but you can go and look up things that Jason Kidd has done in the past. I think that was like a big part of the reason why the Lakers didn't hire him because they very clearly liked him. You know, they clearly went off after Monty Williams. They like really were close with Ty Lue and then had that fall apart at the last minute. And then they brought in Frank Vogel on a day that Magic Johnson came out and called Rob Palenka a backstabber on first take. And just like, it could not have been more of kind of a turbulent start, I think, for him. And then they put Jason Kidd on his staff when Jason Kidd, like, what's the one thing that he's really known for since he retired? And it's like attempting coups constantly. It just really seemed like he was kind of a dead man walking. And I think that he's done an incredible job of winning over the locker room, of coming up with a defensive system that really works and has really been a strength for this team, of managing all of the egos in the locker. I mean, ego sounds negative, but you know what I mean. Like, There's a lot of big personalities in this locker room and getting them all to mesh together. I think that Obviously, Vogel does not get full credit for that. I think a lot, a big part of that is the leadership of LeBron and Anthony Davis. But he really seems to have won over this team, especially last year. There was a lot of grousing about Luke and roles and minutes and how he was communicating and just not a lot of guys that were really going to stick up for Luke Walton. Whereas guys have repeatedly and unpromptedly praised Frank Vogel for his game plans and things like that this year. And that's been really interesting to watch. Um, and I, I think he's done a really good job. Really, the only mark on him and I'm not even sure that you can fully criticize him for this is the Rondo minutes because I think that that's somewhat out of his hands that's a I don't want to lose the locker room so I have to play this guy that's kind of a leader and like a key figure in it and I can't just like bench him so you know I I think he gets like BB plus somewhere around there just like some of the stuff on offense you would think that by this feels so weird to talk about it now again like but you would have thought by like game 60 that they would have figured out some other options besides LeBron James just kind of creating everything but they just really haven't been able to get anything consistently despite a lot of experimenting but overall I think that he's done an incredible job especially when you're factoring in the circumstances that he came in under. So I know we all have busy lives to get back to so these will be the last questions before we let you go. I know you, like most of the basketball community, have been keeping up with the Last Dance documentary on ESPN. What was your reaction to the beginning of episode five, where they interview Kobe about his close relationship with Michael Jordan? 
I mean, first of all, it was just goosebumps because it's just weird at this point, like several months out from his passing to hear his voice again and hear it saying stuff that you haven't heard him say before, because there's, you know, obviously we've heard, we've all heard Kobe's voice a ton since then in old interviews, archived interviews, whatever. It was just strange to hear a new one that hadn't been unearthed before and to hear him talking about Michael Jordan being an older brother and, you know, just the clear reverence he had for him as both a basketball figure and a person and their relationship. And it was just like, honestly, just goosebumps, just hearing him come on and talk about that. And it made it really sad, I think, all over again, because you got that reminder of like the type of figure that he was becoming in basketball and like the way that he saw the game and the way that he saw like his kind of place in it and the way that he saw legends place in it overall was like kind of to give back and how we all take things from each other and we all pass it down. And that's just kind of like basketball genealogy. I, I, you know, I'm just going to miss hearing the way that he talked about the game, things like that. You know, I wasn't always like the biggest fan of like, you know, some of his takes, like we, we, I would disagree with some of the things that he said and some of the ways that he saw things at times, but like at, at the same time, like no one was more, researched on basketball than Kobe was and he had this clear joy and appreciation for the game that I think any of us that have been compelled to get into blogging or podcasting like we could all relate to like having that type of passion for basketball and basketball history and things like that he really just did seem like a you know a basketball nerd who just happened to be really really good at basketball too. Yeah, and obviously for me growing up in Boston, for Aaron as well, I assume as a lifelong Clippers fan, it's not like Kobe was exactly a beloved figure growing up in our lives, but there's no denying his impact, his passion for basketball, how he really embodied that era of the NBA. Do you have a particular memory of him on or off the court that you've returned to in these past few months? Yeah, you know, I I was trying to think about this and like the thing that I kept coming back to in the days after he passed was the last time that I saw him in person, it was actually totally coincidental. It was at Disneyland. Um, my fiance and I are annual pass holders and like, and like just for context, like I don't really know Kobe. Like we have interacted a couple times, but like there's no way he knows my name, probably wouldn't even recognize me. It was like through scrums and stuff like that and on Twitter and things. So like the, he was in no way like a close personal friend of mine, but he was someone that I feel like I really knew. He was someone that I grew up idolizing and really, I think, influenced the way that I approached basketball writing and influenced the way that I approached my own career. And then like, I, I remember we were walking around Disneyland and I just, I saw this like really tall guy and I was like, wait a second, was that Kobe? And like, he was just walking around with his kids. I think the youngest one was probably still too young for Disneyland, but he had the second youngest on his shoulders and he was bouncing her around and he just looked really happy and like just wandering around with his kids through um, Frontierland. It was cool to see him like that. And it was cool just to think back on that memory and like how close he was with his daughters. Like it made it more sad in retrospect as well. But it's the one that I kept coming back to because it really emphasized, I think, who he became as he aged. And he really had committed to like being a family man and being a hashtag girl dad. And that was where his passion had went. Like he was a basketball obsessive and he had devoted all of that to coaching Gianna's team. And it just, you know, it sucks that we're not going to get to see what she would have done. It sucks that 
we aren't going to get to see Kobe's next chapter as a storyteller. And like, like I remember reading that Zach Lowe piece talking about how Kobe just really wanted to change a lot of things about NBA media and bring the appreciation for the game back and things like that. And it's that kind of stuff that I keep coming back to is like what he would have done next and what was next for him in his life at like just 41. And, you know, that, that was the memory that I keep coming back to. I mean, the other one was just like the, the time that he dumped on me on Twitter just because it was so Kobe. He was doing those muse cage things for ESPN during the playoffs. I don't know. You, you both probably remember those little movies that they would show during halftime. And like, he was trying to get out there as a storyteller. And he did one about like an angry, vengeful train of some kind. It was like evil Thomas, the tank engine, if I'm remembering correctly with like strange children like singing and I remember I was just like Kobe having kids sing about like using their anger to fuel their motivation is the most Kobe thing of all time and I remember he just quote tweeted it like yeah that guy's really a weirdo huh or something like that and it was so Kobe because of course he would not see why that was strange and why someone would think that that was strange because he just approached things differently and he just saw the world differently and if you could not think of using your anger to fuel and motivate you and whatever. He just couldn't relate to you. And that was just like who he was. And, you know, I I think that he had softened as he'd gotten older, but he was also like, you know, one of the most competitive people ever. And I I just think constantly about a lot of those stories too, hanging his gold medal in Pau Gasol's locker when they were teammates to motivate him to uh, make sure that they would win a title the next year. And like, just like all the hilarious trash talking stories that have come out afterwards. That's all the stuff that I keep going back to. I apologize for going so long, But um, those are the things that I just keep thinking about. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us talking basketball. It's been great. Uh, Hopefully we've been able to lend some normalcy back to this crazy time that we're living in. This is the most normal I have felt like, like no exaggeration in probably two months. So I do appreciate it. Like every podcast I've done is like talking about like historic Lakers and why there's no basketball and whatever. It's just been nice to like talk about the team and this year again, and like remember that there was a season and that maybe at some point normal life will happen again. Yeah. Thanks again. It's been a lot of fun. 